Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The widow of Alexei Navalny with a new message for Russians. Don't be silent. The lead starts right now. Powerful claims about Navalny's wife, accusing, from Navalny's wife, accusing the Kremlin of hiding her husband's body, alleging that he was poisoned, and urging Russians to take to the streets after his death. CNN is in Russia. We'll show you the aftermath as police are rounding up hundreds of people mourning Putin's fiercest critic. Plus, Donald Trump's latest wink and a nod to another authoritarian leader, Hungary's Viktor Orban, someone who Trump praised on the campaign trail just last month. He's a very great leader, very strong man. It's nice to have a strong man running your country. Plus, the late night skit that has disgraced former Congressman George Santos coming after Jimmy Kimmel in court. Yes, you heard that right. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Caitlin Collins, in for Jake Tapper today. And we start with our world lead and an urgent promise from the widow of one of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics, the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who died suddenly in a prison camp on Friday. Today, we heard from Yulia Navalny, vowing to find out exactly who was responsible for what happened to her husband, as she's also pledging to continue his fight to bring democracy to Russia. I ask you to share your rage, rage, anger and hatred with me towards those who were daring enough to kill our future. And I address you with Alexei's words, which I believe it is not a shame to do. It's not a shame to do little, but it's a shame not to do anything. It's a shame to make yourself intimidated. The Kremlin has said the investigation into Navalny's death is underway, claiming that the results are currently, quote, unknown. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Moscow. Matthew, a Navalny spokesperson said that his body won't be returned to his family still for two more weeks. What is the latest that you've heard about this investigation? Yeah, well, it, it seems to be going very slowly and it's going to be at least two more weeks, according to Navalny's spokesperson, um, saying that that's what the mother of Alexei Navalny has been told. She's made a, a nearly 2000 mile journey to Russia's far north inside the Arctic Circle to the town near where the penal colony is located, where, where Alexei Navalny died uh, on Friday. And she's been trying to get access to the morgue there to try and recover the body so they can have a funeral um, and and you know lay their you know the son lay her son to rest. Um, that's not happened though. She's not even been allowed to see the body at this point. The authorities are saying investigations are, are underway. There's another post mortem they say they want to carry out to try and really get to the bottom of what was it that caused this sudden death of Russia's most prominent uh, opposition leader. The Kremlin, for its part, is being pretty tight-lipped. I mean, basically refusing to comment while that investigation's underway. Vladimir Putin has not said, you know, the Russian president has not said a single word about the death of his most vocal, uh, fiercest critic either. Uh, And so there's 
there's there's lots of suspicion abounding. Uh, you know, the supporters of Navalny believe uh, that the Kremlin is hiding his body uh, in an attempt to try and hide the real reason that he died, Caitlin. Yeah, that's what we heard from, from Yulia. And you also visited a memorial site, Matthew, for Navalny today. What did you hear from people who are, are risking their safety and their security to, to go and show up and pay their respects? Yeah, I mean, it, look, I mean, there are memorial sites that have popped up all over the country in towns and cities across Russia where thousands of people have been going uh, to pay their respects, to lay flowers, to offer their condolences at, the, at these locations, to see some of the people there putting flowers there in Moscow, where I was uh, earlier today. This is not the kind of public display of defiance you know, and support for Alexei Navalny that the Kremlin likes to see. And actually, over the past few days since the death was announced, there's been a crackdown uh, on those uh, mourners by the local authorities, by the police. Hundreds of people have been dragged through those snowy parks away and detained uh, to face uh, some of them, in some cases, uh, charges for disobeying the police. And it's just one example of the risk people take in coming out to even stage this kind of protest in a country like Russia. But it also shows that there is a depth of feeling, there is a sympathy for Alexei Navalny, and that has only been intensified uh, by the announcement of his death. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you. I want to bring in Evelyn Vargas, who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And it's great to have you here. You know, given what we just heard from Matthew about this investigation, that, that Russia is holding his body for at least two more weeks, uh, I think the real question is whether we'll ever know the truth about how he died. Yeah, Caitlin, I think we, the only way we'll ever know the real truth is if you know, Vladimir Putin and his oppressive regime disappears at some point in history and the history books are opened or the files are opened. Um, but whether he died quickly or slowly, we know that it was at the hands of the Kremlin, whether it was poisoning or something else, we know it was at the hands of the Kremlin. So while that may be important to some people, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the reality is that Vladimir Putin was so afraid of, um, of Alexei Navalny that he felt he had to have him murdered. Yeah. And we know that they poisoned him in 2020, that he was treated so terribly in this Russian penal colony. What stuck out to me when hearing from his widow, Yulia, is just what a huge loss this is, obviously, for the Russian opposition movement. And seeing her step into this and say that she's vowing to continue his cause that he so passionately cared about, what did you make of her address today? Yeah, I mean, I think she's trying to hold on to the power of the symbol of Alexei Navalny by putting herself there in his place. I don't know whether, you know, she will be... Um, interested in or up to the job of actually running the opposition movement. Um, and there are questions about, you know, the Russian exiles and the whole Russian opposition movement writ large. They've always been very fractured. Um, this might be an opportunity for them to work more cohesively together. But what does that look like in the sense of the, the future of the Ro Russian opposition movement? Because he was one of the few who had, who had returned and obviously he was immediately arrested and imprisoned and had been there for three years. And so many of the Russian opposition leaders, they're in exile. Uh, he did have that national appeal. So what does the future of this look like? Because we are seeing people go out to, to his vigils and risk their own security to, to go out and pay their respects to him. 
Well, it's it's going to be trickier. Obviously, he was like Nelson Mandela. He was this powerful, powerful person and symbol of everything, every hope that Russians who care about democracy had. There are other dissidents, let's not forget, in political prisoner in, in prison still in Russia, including um, Vladimir Karamurza, who was a pallbearer for John McCain. So they need to be released and our government needs to work to get them out. Um, but at the same time, I think it's going to be hard for the exile groups, harder now without that powerful symbol. They'll have to figure out how they can join forces from the outside. There are still, though, signs, not just of the, the evidence that Matt Matthew just spoke about, but also the 200,000 or so people who signed on to an opposition politician's petition, and he was running on an anti-war platform. He, of course, was removed, no longer can run. Um, but that's a sign that the Russian people also are opposed to Putin's policies. Well, I'm glad you brought up Vladimir Karamurza because his wife is understandably shaken by what has happened to Navalny. He is, for those who don't know, a Russian journalist and opposition leader. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison for speaking out against Russia's war in Ukraine. And his wife said today to Australia Media that she's worried that he'll face the same fate as Navalny. And I just wonder how the West should handle this, because we've seen, you know, President Putin or President Biden talk about the repercussions President Putin would face if Navalny did die on his watch. How should the West respond? Well, a couple of things. In the specific case of Vladimir Karamurza, there's been a push underway, including um, my institute and others who have been trying to, um, Bill Browder, um, notably, who have been trying Mm -hmm. to get Vladimir Putin designated under something called the Levinson Law. Um, That would just mean that that the American envoy, Special Envoy Roger Carstens, that he can intervene on behalf of Vladimir Karamurza. There's a big basis for that, but the biggest one is that he's a green card holder and his his wife and his children, his three children, live here in the U.S. Um, For the others, I also think that the U.S. government should, first of all, clearly punish somehow, even if it's just symbolic, the Russian government for what they've done to Alexei Navalny, and then work to try to get the others released. And we probably need to do it with our European and other allies and partners. There may be some kind of prisoner swap that can be negotiated. We'll continue to watch it. Obviously, Evelyn Farkas, great to have your expertise here today. Thank you for joining And of course, it's important to look at the big picture here as Navalny's death is coming as Russia has just made a major military gain in Ukraine. They wrestle in control of a key city, Avdikva, a city that Ukrainian forces have been trying to defend for a decade now. Sinan's Nick Peyton Walsh is in Ukraine as those forces are struggling to repel Russian attacks and as U.S. aid is essentially at a complete standstill, a warning that some of the images you will see in this report are quite disturbing. A sight not seen for a while, a Russian flag going up over Ukraine. But Ukraine's withdrawal announced on Saturday from Avdivka means more than the loss of a town bitterly fought over since Russia first invaded a decade ago. It is perhaps the first sign a delay in US aid spells death and loss here. These images released of their last defences rushing into support under fire from a resurgent Russia who President Zelensky says sent seven Russian troops to die for every dead Ukrainian. This is what it was like in the basement, defending down to the last, treating the injured in the darkness, yet aware their options, their ammo, their chances were ebbing. Shelling, endless. It spoiled my drink, this soldier complains. 
A commander clear Monday why this happened. We didn't have enough people, he says. We didn't have enough shells. We didn't have enough possibilities to throw them back. Russia's Ministry of Defence released images of their final onslaught on that coke plant and what they claimed were the casualties inflicted on Ukrainians as they tried to flee in the dark. Other images and reports emerged Monday in Ukraine of the fate of their wounded, one of whom called home in his last moments. Allegations that, in the horrifying rubble here, both the wounded were left behind by Ukraine, but also shot dead in cold blood by Russian forces. Russian drone images of their spoils released, again displaying their odd pride over the rubble. Zelensky may have to get used to more of this. Putting on a brave face as he visited troops in the likely next Russian target, Kupiansk, just outside Kharkiv. Although there are different political sentiments in the world, he said, different flashes of problems that distract attention, we still, all together, do our utmost to have the world with us, with Ukraine. Words no longer enough, not in Avdivka, and certainly not in the West, where $60 billion in missing aid now means Putin can slowly edge further and further west. Now, for all the outrage at the dysfunctionality of Republican-led Congress not putting that $60 billion of aid through, they're still off for the next two weeks. Won't even consider it for a fortnight. And that is a potentially very perilous two weeks here in Ukraine. Not only, you heard there in Kupiansk, could be under pressure. They've lost Avdivka in the south, in Zaporizhia, a key village taken in the southern counteroffensive in the summer. That is now looking vulnerable to a Russian push, as are two other locations in the east as well. Russia on its front foot, pushing forward, clearly sensing Western uh, weakness here and that Ukraine is running out of men and ammunition. A very dark time here in Ukraine. Caitlin? Yeah. As Zelensky said, dictators don't go on vacation. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you for that report. And those actions that Nick mentioned there by House Republicans, President Biden said today that they are shocking, that he's never seen anything like this. More on that in a moment. Also, the punchline from Jimmy Kimmel that has now turned into reality. Can you imagine if I get sued by George Santos for fraud? I mean, how good would that be? It would be like a dream come true. A new lawsuit that just dropped ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with the politics lead. In the wake of Alexei Navalny's death, President Biden is chastising House Republicans for blocking $61 billion in aid for Ukraine. 
they're making a big mistake not responding. Look, the way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, is, is, is just shocking. I've been for a while. I've never seen anything like this. When the president was asked if he thinks that Navalny's death will get House Republicans who oppose more aid to Ukraine to shift their stance, he said he's hopeful, but he's not counting on it. House Speaker Mike Johnson has signaled that the latest bill will not be brought to the House floor. I want to bring in our political panel. We have Jonah Goldberg and Bakari Sellers here. Jonah, can we just talk about this idea that has, you know, began to kind of rear its ugly head since Friday, which I first saw with Lee Zeldin, former congressman, uh, posting about it. But it's this idea from the, the far right that basically what happened to Navalny is what is happening to Donald Trump here in the United States. And you just wrote something about um, this is such a false moral equivalence and that condemning that was once central to American conservatism. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure it's the far right. I think it's just sort of the dumb, hackish partisan right. Um, you know, I mean, it's Newt Gingrich is one of the guys doing this. Lee Zeldin is not some crazy far right right winger. He's just a partisan hack right winger. Um, look, my old boss, William F. Buckley, he famously, he had, he had the most famous line about this when someone said to him, look, there's no difference between the United States and the Soviet Union. We both have these huge military complexes. And he says, look, if you refer to one guy who pushes old ladies in front of buses and another guy who pushes old ladies out of the way of oncoming buses, both, and you describe them both as the sorts of men who push old ladies around, you're missing something really important. The idea that we're anything like Putin's Russia is, I mean, forget that it's a slander against Joe Biden, which I don't really care about. It's a slander against the United States of America. This is not a corrupt, evil, despotic, um, criminal thugocracy. And for Republicans to be talking this way is outrageous. And Liz Cheney, Bakari, we're hearing from her on this. You know, she just posted truly seconds ago, but she's talking about how Donald Trump has acknowledged the death of Navalny, but, but not to condemn it or to say anything about Putin. She noted that and said, you know, at the same time this is happening, Trump is claiming Putin-style tyrannical immunity in his U.S. Supreme Court briefs. She said it seems like Trump thinks he needs Putin help with something and can't risk angering him. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I think that over the past couple of years, we've been in this time warp where you have many Democrats or just it's not even Democrats, but just common sense Americans just all agreeing with Liz Cheney. She's right in this fact. The, the, Donald Trump not being able to condemn what happened in Russia, not being able to condemn. And I love Jonah's term of thugocracy um, and, and this death is just it, it's not anything that surprises us. I think seeing the fraying around the Republican Party and it's losing its true conservative values and its true moral compass, um, the, the further rot and decay of the Republican Party that it has become Trump's party is what's startling us most. I think Liz Cheney's actually getting to a point, which many of us remember in the 2016 election, whether or not you want to go back there and unearth uh, kind of those bones or not, uh, you did see a great deal of Russian interference in that election. Uh, whether or not you talk about the forms of misinformation that targeted African-American male voters in particular uh, or what have you. And I think she's alluding to the fact that Donald Trump is courting that help again. But I, instead of beating those those drums again to where my, my friends on the far right turn to deaf ears, I would just say you need to reclaim your party because right now your party's marching behind the likes of, of Vladimir Putin. It's no longer the party of, of, of Ronald Reagan.
Yeah, and, and Jonah, you you took issue with how I described it as far right. I think you do make a good point about how it is becoming more of just it's not the people who are on the furthest right in the furthest extremes in the Republican Party. They're making this comparison. And Liz Cheney was on State of the Union with Jake yesterday, and, and she was asked about, you know, obviously someone who has grown up in the Republican Party is emblematic of it, including with her, her father. This is what she said about this new strain of the GOP. You've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West Wing of the White House. When you think about Donald Trump, for example, pledging retribution, um, what Vladimir Putin did to Navalny is what retribution looks like in a country where the leader is not subject to the rule of law. Do you agree with her? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I have a little more, for, for, the, for the same reason I'm pissed off at Republicans who, who have this sort of 1960s hard, crazy left attitude of anti-Americanism that is now taking over big chunks of the right. For those for the same reasons, I'm not where Liz Cheney is on this. I don't think that um, that Donald Trump would be an American Putin in part because Vladimir Putin has a much better work ethic than Donald Trump does. Donald Trump is really lazy. <laughs> And um, <laughs> uh, it takes work to be an effective, you know, uh, dictator. Um, that said, you know, you can come way short of being Vladimir Putin and still be really bad, right? The idea that Donald Trump wouldn't test how far he could go, wouldn't test the goodwill of the people who work for him, of the 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 courts, of the justice system, um, seems preposterous to me. Of course he would. Um, and that's bad enough. Whether he, you know, goes full Putin is sort of immaterial to me because I, I hold America to a much higher standard than than that. I mean, five percent of being like Putin would be bad enough. Bakari, you're laughing at that. Do you want to respond to it? Because I, well, I got to ask you about something else. But but I just want to hear what you what your take is on on what Jonah just said. I, I mean, Jonah's Jonah's right. He's batting a thousand a day. Nobody goes full Putin. I guess is is the term that we will. Uh, coin today on the show, but but he's right, and I think there is an inherent danger uh, with Donald Trump. But there's also a danger surrounding the the echo chamber that is um, the Republican Party because you have media within the same right wing area which is espousing many of these same views. Yeah, uh, Bukhari. The, the other thing that happened over the weekend, you know. Navalny's death happened on Friday. We were watching the aftermath of that, Trump not weighing in. The one thing he did do over the weekend after that judge in New York ordered him to pay this $550 million penalty that includes interest, he was hawking these $400 gold sneakers called the Never Surrender High Tops uh, that apparently I believe sold out if, if what I read in Axios is correct. But I just wonder what you, you make of this given obviously he's going to get a cut of this. Obviously he's facing intense legal expenses. And this is something that we've seen him do time and time again, whether it's the trading cards, now gold sneakers. And he's just, a, I mean, uh, these air impeachments just simply are not going to sell. I mean, that that's first. And second, I don't know if you recall, but they gave the 44th president of the United States of America so much hell because he used the selfie stick or because he wore a brown suit. I mean, they people literally said that was beneath the office. And here you have a former president of the United States running for president again, who's hawking these. Uh, they actually, actually don't look that bad, but who's hawking these <laughs> these bright gold shoes for four hundred dollars. 
I mean, look, I, I might rock them if they weren't like Air January sixes. Like they, they, they don't look that bad. Um, but you know, this is this is literally beneath the office, and I think most Americans are become desensitized. We used to hold President of the United States to a higher standard. Now you can look at your child and be like, I don't want you to be like Donald Trump. Be something else. Air January 6th might be the, the quote of the day. Bakari, Jonah, thank you both for being here. Everyone go read Jonah's column. It is great. Also, this programming note, because tomorrow here on The Lead, Jake is going to interview Nikki Haley. That will be here tomorrow, 4 o'clock Eastern. You don't want to miss it. Also, getting out from under the so-called bubble of the Biden campaign. That is what Vice President Kamala Harris is trying to do, according to new CNN reporting. We'll speak with her former communications director about her efforts right after this. In our politics lead, sources tell CNN that Vice President Kamala Harris is working behind the scenes to improve the Biden campaign's messaging with voters who will be critical to winning a second term. But will these new strategies or tactics be enough to retain skeptical voters who feel isolated by the Biden campaign? Let's ask none other than the former communications director for Vice President Harris, Jamal Simmons. Jamal, great to have you here. I wonder what you make of the efforts reported in this story on what she's doing, given, you know, we have seen Republicans try to make Harris the focus of the 2024 campaign amid those questions about Biden's age. I think it will be effective. Listen, um, when I went to work for her now about a year and a half ago, almost uh, a little more than a year ago, I guess. Well, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Anyway, when I went to go work for her, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to remember. Uh, but what I went to work for, it was clear that she was a unique kind of vice president in the recent history of vice presidents, right? We're used to the Al Gore, Dick Cheney, Mike Pence, even Joe Biden kind of format, which was a vice president who was a Washington, D.C. expert who was uh, bringing in a, a president who really didn't know D.C. It was a D.C. outsider. That's not the relationship that the vice president Kamala Harris had with Joe Biden. Joe Biden was a D.C. In insider. So she had a little bit more of that outside flavor. It was always going to be better for her to go out to the country, to gather information, to bring the administration's message to people in the country, but to gather information and then bring that back to the West Wing and inform the thinking of the West Wing by those travels. That's what we tried to do when I was there. I think she's done it even more. We saw that particularly around the efforts around abortion rights, where she was doing that every week. So uh, this is just taking that abortion rights um, model that she did in 2022 and then expanding that yeah. to more areas, bringing back more information. Well, Isaac Duvier reports in this that, that several of her confidants have said that there's been that they're kind of wary uh, in her orbit of the approach from the Biden campaign, from people like Jen O'Malley Dillon, obviously a pivotal figure in the West Wing, now going to work on the campaign about using Harris enough. Do you feel that, that she is being utilized in the right way by the Biden campaign? I, I do think she is now. Um, now, what's interesting is very different. A lot of the things she's doing today, she was doing a year and a half or two years ago. What's different now, though, is the West Wing and the campaign are really highlighting what she's doing much more. So people are seeing it a lot more. Also, remember, so many viewers and voters get their information from social media. So you see the vice president talking to people like um, um, uh, Priyanka Chopra or Kiki Palmer or some of these folks who are a little bit more uh, more social media savvy. They've got these big followings. She's using that as a way to communicate directly with voters, but she's also doing meetings with the vice president's residents and around the country to get as much information as possible and take that back to the West Wing.
Yeah, and so she's been talking to a lot of lawmakers as part of this, and she's actually gotten some tough feedback from those in Michigan, people like Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, pushing her to get the White House to take more seriously the criticism that they are getting over their stance and how they've been handling the Israel-Hamas war and how it's resonating with Arab Americans here. And Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib over the weekend said this about the upcoming primary. This is what she urged voters to do in Michigan. It is also important to create a voting block, something that is a bullhorn to say enough is enough. We don't want a country that supports wars and bombs and destruction. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. What do you make of that? You know, it's a mixed bag. I was on the phone with a couple of folks from Detroit in the last day or two, which is where I'm from. Um, one person who I was surprised said he thought about voting uncommitted because he really was concerned about what's happening in Gaza. But then I also talked to someone and I found out, I guess I'm going to say this here for the first time, I think that Congresswoman Tlaib is going to get a primary challenge. I'm hearing very strong rumblings, and it may be from uh, a gentleman from Detroit. I can't say the name yet, but I do think he, she may get a primary challenge almost because of how stridently she's been doing this. So people are all over the map. It's dividing democratic communities. And I think the president is gonna have to go in hard and really knit people back together. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Some news there, we'll see if that, that comes to fruition. Jamal Simmons, great to have your inside expertise on this. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Up next, Qatar is responding to Israel, the country that has been at the center of the hostage release negotiations ever since November, when we first saw that release, now criticizing the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. In today's world lead, the country that's at the center of the negotiations to free Israeli hostages who are still being held by Hamas is rejecting criticism from the Israeli government. Qatar's foreign ministry today called out the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, over comments that he made suggesting that Qatar is not applying enough pressure on Hamas. CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, is covering the story from Tel Aviv. Nick, I just wonder what you make of this very public split as these, you know, Netanyahu and these uh, Qatari, Qatari officials are going back and forth while there are still hostages being held, that they're still at the center of this, and what it says to you about the status of those talks. Yeah, it's not a good sign, is it? Look, right now, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to put every bit of pressure he can on Hamas. And he was at a, a conference here with the presidents of some major American Jewish organizations here in Tel Aviv, uh, in Jerusalem. And he told them, look, the only way to get the hostages back is for you and everyone else to put more pressure on the Qataris. And this is what the Qataris were responding to, the foreign ministry spokesman saying this. Um, this, uh, the Israeli prime minister's recent uh, statement calling on Qatar to pressure Hamas to release the hostages are nothing, are nothing but a new attempt to stall and prolong this war for reasons that become obvious to everyone. If that doesn't sound like the language of 
frustration, um, I don't know what is. So yes, while Qatar is supposed to be in the middle negotiating, um, it's really beginning to sound like the Prime Minister thinks that they're the problem. And that's never going to get you where you want to go with a mediator by essentially publicly trying to blame them. With Hamas on this. And what stood out is that this is all coming, as we also heard from Benny Gantz. He's a leading member of the war cabinet in Israel. And he kind of threw down this gauntlet, essentially, by saying that if all the hostages aren't released by March 10th, the end of Ramadan, that that fighting that everyone has been so concerned about will continue in Rafah, which, of course, just as a reminder, is where over a million Palestinians are, have fled to, to to get out of the way of the bombardments happening elsewhere in Gaza. Yeah, again, this is really interesting. And I think it's part of that pressure that the government is trying to put on Hamas. Now you guys have got a deadline to kind of give, give in to our demands. Hamas is saying we want a permanent ceasefire. Israel is saying, no, we'll give you a, a temporary pause. So that's the difference. That's the pressure point. It's instructive, too, because it really appears as if the Israeli government uh, isn't ready, actually, to send the troops into Rafa, that the IDF are tied down in Han Yunus at the moment. They've been there fighting for more than, a, more than about two months in Han Yunus, and they were expecting to be freed up and ready to move on sooner than they are now. Why do I say that? Because just a, just a week or so ago, the prime minister was saying, we'll get Rafa done before Ramadan. Um, now they're saying, we'll start it when Ramadan begins, 10th or 11th of March. So I don't think the IDF is actually quite ready as well. Yeah, I said that, and that's the beginning of it. Obviously, a critical date that everyone's looking to less than a month away from now. Uh, Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv, thank you for that reporting. Up next, a compelling look at the surge in violence in our nation's capital. Teenagers that are often behind these crimes. The nation's capital is grappling with a serious spike in crime. And as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, the numbers show, on average, many of those arrested for robbery and carjacking are not even 18 years old. Fear has been growing in the nation's capital, the result of a violent crime surge, and an alarming number of kids are caught up in it. What do they say when it comes to carjacking or robbery? What are kids saying about it? They really don't think now because all they think they're doing is get in the car. They don't see the impact it do to other people. They think it's not a big deal. Yeah, they think it's not a big deal. 15-year-old Eddie, not his real name, is one of the kids that mentors in D.C. are trying to keep off the streets and out of trouble. It's a lot that kids dealing with in D.C. Y'all probably just see one side of it, but it's a whole different side of it. Violent crime in D.C. rose 39% last year. Carjackings nearly doubled. The average age of those arrested, 15 years old. I meet Eddie and his friends at a courthouse where they just watched their 17-year-old friend get sentenced for attempted robbery. Jail is not a game. Marcellus Queen brings them here to see the consequences of crime. He's been working with them as a mentor since another friend of theirs was killed. He's trying to keep things from getting worse what they call crashing out. I've been in prison with men, and they on their 10-year sentence. At their 10 years on 30 years, and they just wish that they can restart. So I, I try to, like, make sure they don't have to get to that point where they have to restart. You're trying to intervene before one of them ends up in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Eddie tells me he was shot last year when he was 14. He's not in school, another pervasive problem in D.C. 
Do you think there's a crisis right now with kids in D.C.? Definitely. Definitely a crisis. I've never seen a nine-year-old and an eight-year-old pull armed robberies. I've never seen 12-year-olds do the things that they had. Last fall, a 13-year-old boy was killed while police say he was trying to carjack an off-duty federal security officer. He had nine prior charges for carjacking and robbery. Mohammed, a food delivery driver, says he won't work in D.C. anymore after a group tried to carjack him. Neighbors fought them off. Police arrested five kids as young as 13. Sometimes I cannot sleep after that attack. I cannot sleep. D.C.'s mayor declared a juvenile crime emergency, venting frustrations about the same children committing crimes again and again. People laugh at me sometimes when I say a child may be better off in a secure environment. D.C.'s council has advanced a new crime bill that could allow judges to hold kids in jail until trial when they're accused of certain serious crimes. I think the laws are too lenient. Curtis Brothers and I walked through the D.C. neighborhood where he opened fire at police as a young man. And how long were you in prison for that? Well, yeah. Now he's a violence interrupter on the same streets, tasked with maintaining a safe passage for students outside this middle school. Because of the violence. Because we, we want to make sure that the kids go to school and from school safe. When they talk about robberies and murders, they talk about it like it's a game, win or lose, you know what I'm saying? Why do you come to a middle school? Um, because that's, that's the most vulnerable age. Once they get to high school, it's, it's probably over. We sit in on a conflict resolution class for kids as young as five years old. The hope is to break the cycle. What brought you down that path? How would happen? A lack of guidance, for real. A lack of guidance. Down the hall, we meet two boys, 16 and 17. We agree to call them Dion and Steve, both previously incarcerated for gun possession and robbery. Court mandated to work with this program, mentoring other kids on conflict resolution. A lot of people crash out because they don't have the right guys. They don't got mentors. They ain't got nobody to talk to. It's just everything is getting more fast-paced. They scroll on their phone, or they see, uh, you did this, and you stole the car, you could program the car like this, or whatever the case may be, that's going to influence them. They're like, I'm hungry, I don't got no clothes, my brother locked up, my mother not doing nothing for me, so let me go do this. They're among the many that say D.C. can't just arrest and prosecute its way out of this crisis, a city still experiencing hypergentrification and stark pockets of poverty, worsened by the recent weight of extreme inflation on struggling families and social media that's added a toxic layer to many vulnerable kids' lives. If they intervene way before to the point of crashing out, then it would never happen. Every single case you see, 100 days missing a school, but no food in the household. Why does it have to take something so major to, to see, oh, okay, we're failing. We're failing the kids. And the most saddest thing about it is they're willing to throw our kids away instead of fix our families. And city leaders here are facing a lot of criticism for a drop in arrests and prosecutions, as well as what some see as lenient laws giving kids a slap on the wrist for serious offenses. But Caitlin, the issues clearly run deeper. 60% of high schoolers here are chronically absent from school. And I've spoken with sources who just don't feel like the right steps are being taken to intervene early for some of the most at-risk kids. Caitlin? Yeah becoming a real issue. That's a great substantive report, Gabe Cohen. Thank you for that.
Up next here on The Lead for us, there's a late night skit about George Santos that has comedian Jimmy Kimmel now facing a lawsuit. Okay, this one could be the pop lead or the law and justice lead, but we set it on politics mainly because it involves former, now expelled, Congressman George Santos. Maybe you saw these segments of Jimmy Kimmel's show when he was submitting anonymous requests for Santos to record greetings on Cameo, not revealing that they were fake greetings or that they would be broadcast. George, please congratulate my mom, Brenda, on the successful cloning of her beloved schnauzer, Adolf. <laughs> Will Santos say it? Yes! Hey, Brenda. I wanted to congratulate you on successfully cloning your beloved schnauzer, Adolf. Well, now Santos is suing Jimmy Kibble, ABC, and the Walt Disney Company, claiming that he deceived him into creating the videos for the skit. In this lawsuit, Santos, Santos says that Kimmel misrepresented the motives for the sole purpose of capitalizing and ridiculing Santos's quote, gregarious personality. That's in his lawsuit. He wants at least $2 million in damages, which he could potentially need to keep up with his legal bills since he is not drawing his congressional salary anymore and instead making money from those videos on Cameo. We'll follow that. Also, a reminder here about what's next on the lead tomorrow as Jake is going to interview Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. That's on the lead tomorrow, starting at 4 o'clock Eastern. In the meantime, you can join me in just a few hours here tonight on The Source. I'll be joined by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, his first interview on CNN after announcing that he will not run for president. That's tonight, 9 o'clock Eastern. I'll see you there. But in the meantime, our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blitzer in The Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.